This is Rob Long with Martini Shot for The Ankler. When I was first starting out in the entertainment business, I used to read the trades. Back then, that meant Variety and The Hollywood Reporter, two glossy magazine-sized daily publications. Variety was actually still in its original tabloid format that were filled with that day's news about what was happening in Hollywood, none of which made any difference to me. That was pointed out to me by some old guy sitting outside a coffee shop. I don't know who he was, but in the ensuing years, I have decided that he was an old school producer who once had an office on the lot, any lot. And one morning, as I sat reading the trades and drinking coffee, he pointed to Variety and asked me, why are you reading that? What difference does it make to you if some guy is now the head of distribution for some outfit? And he was right. There was nothing in the trades that had any relevance to who I was at the time or who I wanted to be. Variety and The Reporter were filled with arcane news about an industry that I was not yet a part of and wouldn't be if I didn't finish writing a couple of spec scripts, which I wasn't doing because I was too busy reading the trades in the mistaken belief that I had to know what everyone else, people mostly who already had jobs, was up to. Now, I'm not sure why I read them today either, actually. The news that's reported is of near zero importance to my life and workday, and about the only thing the trades are good for, especially now that they're all online and have lively, acid-flecked comment sections, is to keep up on the career milestones of other people in the business who you may know, or you may like, or you may be secret enemies with. The problem here is that as entertainment industry news transitioned from print to pixel, so did the need to make tough decisions about what belongs on the page and what doesn't. Pixels, you see, are infinite. Pages in print, not so much. So scroll through the trades today and it's a cascade of deals signed and pitches bought and production pods on the move, successes right and left. So a normal person in the business reads these notices and thinks, man, I got to get moving. What's happening to me? Everyone else is doing things? What am I doing? I'm sitting here, scrolling. To be honest, that was often my feeling way back when I'd sit and read the paper trades and avoid writing. And to be honest-er, I still feel those twinges when I read the online trades today. Look at all those people doing amazing and productive things. And then I remember this. What the trades specialize in is announcements of things that may happen in a year or so. Most of the news is provisional and set in a future that will unfold only if a lot of other things happen. Pitches are bought in what the trades call an auction situation, but that means that a script needs to be written and then put into production and then cast. A production company that was just formed by an outgoing studio president and a head of development for TV network now has to find some material to produce and some product to make. Not so easy. A lot of the time, these things just, they just fade away. A lot of drum roll, no actual music. In other words, a year from, and there's no scientific way to be sure of this, I'm just making up an educated guess, but a year from now, from the publication of the majority of announcements about this or that project, or this or that pitch, or this or that production company, the result will be nothing. None of it's going to get made or sold. None of it will produce anything, which means none of it is worth getting anxious over, and none of it is important to know right now. In fact, I'd like to build a piece of software that reads the trades for me, stores the stories for a year, checks back on their relevance 12 months later, and then republishes them for me only if anything ever came of them. Only if anything ever got made. Only, in other words, 
if I really should feel bad about myself. But once you figure out that most of the announcements in the trades about great new projects and glamorous casting and straight-to-series orders will in about a year never actually amount to anything, well, then you start to see these things like they're Instagram influencers, where everyone looks great and every meal is amazing and all the bad, ugly stuff is just out of frame. Now, people who've been in show business a long time know this instinctively, since most of what we do is create nice, pretty pictures for people to look at on a very temporary basis. People new to show business, and I'll let you define what new means in this context, can get caught up with irrational enthusiasm for things that just, you know, ain't ever going to happen. I have an ambitious and energetic friend, don't you hate those, who has an eccentric morning ritual. Every single weekday morning, without fail, before he does anything, before checking his emails, looking at his phone, he opens up a notebook and he writes down at least 10 ideas for businesses that he thinks would be giant moneymakers. One morning, he sketched out a plan to create a home breakfast delivery. It would be like Uber, he told me, but for breakfast. Uber for breakfast isn't the worst idea, I suppose. And the way my friend described that idea as a cross between two familiar things is the way most of us in Hollywood pitch our ideas, too. It's like frozen meets the hangover, a writer friend said to me when I made the irrevocable mistake of asking him what his new script was about. That's the way it works in Hollywood, anyway. In the world of technology, the trick usually is to present your idea as something utterly new and dazzling. This has become troublesome as the worlds of Hollywood and Silicon Valley have been moving closer and closer together. People from the world of technology see everything as one-of-a-kind and world-changing. People from the world of entertainment see everything as basically, you know, just a slightly different version of something else combined with something else that you already know about, with maybe slightly better audio. Please don't confuse us with Netflix or Amazon, the leader of a new online content source told me in a meeting, because we're totally different. We are totally new. We're like revolutionary. And then he went on after several minutes to describe his revolutionary and totally different way of producing and delivering movies and TV to audiences which to plotting and thick-headed old me sounded exactly like the way Amazon and Netflix do it. And when I timidly suggested that there were some obvious parallels like the monthly fee and the online streaming and everything available on demand, he looked at me sadly and said, you just don't get it. Which I didn't because, I don't know, a year later I'm still making my own breakfast. I had lunch with an old friend of mine who, despite richly deserving it, has not yet been fired by the investment bank where he works in something called structured finance. Structured finance is the fun term they use when they don't want to say mortgage-backed securities or collateralized debt obligations because it just sounds better than those things, which, I think you'll recall, didn't turn out so well. Sort of like years ago when Philip Morris cigarettes came up with a new slogan, Philip Morris cigarettes, less throat irritation. Oh, less throat irritation. Oh, this finance is structured. Sounds safer. Anyway, I was telling my friend at lunch about a pilot I once shot and how great it was and how disappointing it was that for whatever reason, it didn't get ordered. And he said those words that no one ever wants to hear. You know what you should do? He asked. No, what should I do? You should just go to the actors and the writers involved and say, hey, let's all do this show for, like, nothing. We'll just work for equity in the project, like a startup. Just be entrepreneurial. What? I asked. Yeah, just, like, do it for, like, no money up front. Put it up on the web or YouTube or whatever, and if it hits, you get a piece of the back end. 
I get a piece of the back end anyway, I said. Plus, I get fees up front. Okay, just trying to be helpful, he said. So, in my experience, when anyone ever says the words, you know what you should do, the next words that come out of their mouth, totally unhelpful. You should not do what it is they think you should do. In many cases, you should do the opposite of what they think you should do. But I've heard this kind of thinking before, and part of me honestly agrees with it. Part of me, the thinking, thoughtful, rational part of me, knows that the entertainment business is going through a major unprecedented squeeze as the value of gatekeeping plummets, as audience discover new ways to be entertained on their timetable, on their terms, on their phone. It's only natural that the fortresses of cash that the big studios have become in the past years will crumble. Studios are going to be merging and buying each other and selling each other and shutting down divisions and laying people off and getting smaller and cutting costs and lowering quotes. Show business, and I don't care what part of it you're in, is what we call an OPM business, other people's money, because most ventures fail, and this is true of many businesses, and the best way to fail is to fail on someone else's tab. The economic model will be familiar to anyone in the venture capital business. Invest in enough projects, even really crazy way out ones, and you're bound to have one or two that really pay off. It's those hits that pay for all the failures. But in order to get to the hits, you have to be able to weather the losses of the failures, which means you need money. You need lots and lots of money. And that is where investors come in. The chief benefit of investors, of course, is that they have piles of money. And here I'm using the term investor in the broadest possible sense. It could be a bank or a venture fund or a wealthy uncle, or in my case, a motion picture television studio. But aside from that, an almost equal benefit to having investors is that you have to explain to someone else why exactly you need the money and how precisely you think you're going to make it back. In old movies or TV shows, whenever a door-to-door salesman comes around, they always ask the same question. Is the lady of the house in? That's if they're selling what back then were lady things like household stuff and cleaners and religious tracts and things that housewives back then had exclusive control over. If they were selling manly things like life insurance or real estate or money-making opportunities, they'd ask in a plummy voice, is the man of the house available? Now, what those salesmen were doing, what all salesmen do, both the ones in the movies and the ones who work in the movies, they was trying to get their pitch in front of the decision maker. So if you're going to do the song and dance, do it in front of the person who's going to give the green light. Or as a legendary movie producer once put it, I won't take no from someone who isn't allowed to give a yes. Of the three requirements to becoming a real Hollywood producer, the chief one is an ability to spend money the power to say yes, which brings me to this story. In May 2007, single mother Cynthia Stafford won $67 million in the California State Lottery, and she decided to do something kind of foolish with the money. She decided to get into the movie business. And in that respect, the Hawthorne, California resident is a lot like a lot of rich and suddenly rich folks, and a lot like the people who have bought and sold studios for decades, Sony, Coca-Cola, Transamerica, and the people who run these companies getting irrational, enthusiastic about streaming fees and binge watchers and everything else that seems new and revolutionary, but is in fact, wait a year, temporary. When the skies open up and rain money, what venture capitalists and investment bankers call without irony, a liquidity event, a lot of rich people decide to take a fistful of that newly acquired cash and throw it out of a window marked, become a Hollywood producer. Some people behave in irrational and impulsive ways. Stafford produced three feature films, a feel-good comedy called The Brass Teapot, 
a comedy thriller called Hala 2, and a drama about a Jewish rap star, I'm not kidding, called Polish Bar. Haven't heard of them? Well, neither have I. Although I did used to see the giant billboard for the brass teapot, I think, along Ventura Boulevard as I drove home from the studio. So, okay, look, she won some money, she made some movies, so what if none of them have done much business? And maybe those movies are awful. Although, let's be honest, that doesn't make her unique among big-time Hollywood producers. As my first agent told me once about another project, it doesn't matter so much if it's good. What matters is it was made. In 2016, about nine years later, Cynthia Stafford filed for bankruptcy. And the temptation here is to think of this as one person making a specific mistake. But you can see the Cynthia Stafford syndrome all over town at Netflix, where the crunch is on, at Warner Brothers Discovery, where the cutbacks are starting, at Disney, where the management suddenly was overturned yesterday. And all because in show business, people tend to read the trades and get excited instead of, you know, just doing something else and waiting a year. And that's it for this week. Next week, we will check our phones. For The Ankler, 